Hello and welcome to the Campaign Podcast. My name's Matt Barker, I'm Campaign's Feature Editor, and I'm joined today by Gurdjit Deegan, Campaign's Creativity and Culture Editor. Hi, Gurdjit. Hello, how are you? Not too bad, not too bad. I'm always deeply jealous of your job title. I always think creativity and culture editor, you can just sneak into any party you want, really, can't you? Any, any sort of gallery openings, just say, I'm the Campaign's Creativity and Culture Editor, show me the bar. That is definitely my life, yes. <laughs> okay, well, Coming up today, we're going to be hearing from the team at New Commercial Arts as they celebrate their third anniversary and look back at the challenges of launching under lockdown. They're going to be unpicking the current state of the industry and discussing things like the recent Sainsbury's win. They've, they've had a lot of successes over in, in their short sort of lifespan. Um, but before that, we're going to discuss a couple of recent campaign stories that have caught our eye. Gurdjit, you wrote a new story about Unilever and it's called for production crews to be more inclusive when it comes to members of the disability community. The multinational has said that it wants to see at least one person with a disability being included on crews working on shoots with a budget of 100,000 euros or more. Uh, Why is Unilever being so focused on this particular issue at the moment? So this is part of their Act 2 unstereotype, uh, which was launched um, last year. No, wait, 21. I always forget what year we were in, sorry, in 2021. (laughs) So that is all about um, marginalised communities feeling stereotyped by advertising. And Unilever has has been taking steps in different um, aspects of that that initiative. So, yes, today we we ran the story today. They're calling, yeah, so they want... £86,000, so €100,000, any, um, as you say, any shoots costing more than that, they want to see at least one person from uh, the disability community on as part of a crew member on the shoot. Unilever is also introducing what it calls an inclusive production toolkit. What can you tell me about that? So, yes, this is an interesting part of the initiative that Unilever has um, introduced today. The um, today is in the 31st of May, because I know this is going out uh, tomorrow on the 1st of June. Um, it's basically, as you say, a toolkit or a how-to guide on how to make productions as inclusive as, as, as possible. And they've open sourced it and they've collaborated with the disability community. Um, it's things like best practice um, and they, they, uh, they say that they want to make it more disability confident and inclusive of people's needs. Uh, They've made it in collaboration with Inclusively Made, founded by Bus Stop Films and Taste Creative. Now, we also ran an op-ed this week to to accompany the news piece written by uh, Dana Cadden, who's Unilever's Global Head of Advertising Production. And she spoke about the huge opportunity that the advertising industry has to tap into this deep pool of creative talent from the disabled community. Uh, and that people with disabilities make up just 6% of off-screen talent in TV, film and advertising. That sounds depressingly low, doesn't it? Oh, God, it is really depressing. I think this is a societal thing as well, isn't it, about um, being more inclusive generally, um, especially, and so, and this part is with people with a disability. Um, so, yeah, there, there are a load of stats um, that are also in the article and um, in, in the piece that you've, you've just referred to. Um, so as part of the Act 2 on stereotype, Unilever um, carried out some research um, and found that people in the UK, those um, who have a disability, 
say that TV, film and advertising industries only represent 8.3% of roles on screen and 6% off screen, which is what you've just referred to. In the US, it's 34% um, of people with a disability feeling underrepresented in media. And um, it says 52% uh, feel they are inaccurately represented. So there's a massive thing um, kind of to change, um, a lot of work to do. And I suppose this is um, Unilever kind of acting on making a change, I guess, um, instead of just kind of talking about it. So, yeah, so she's done a, a an opinion piece around it as well. Gives more kind of detail um, about why they've why they've introduced this. Yeah, be, be interesting to see what happens when the wider industry how the, how they react uh, to this news because it is it is fairly shocking stuff, I have to say. Um, another big news story from this week was Caroline Pay, who joined Density Creative as Chief Creative Officer. She left the meditation app Headspace. I'm, I'm not a user, I have to say, almost a year ago, um, and has worked with Vicky Maguire at Grey. She was at BBH for a while as well, and, and clearly she's got an impressive CV. Do you think Dentsy is going to be a good fit for her? Um, I don't know, because obviously I need to see the work um, before uh, making, make, making a call like that. Um, firstly, Headspace is brilliant. <laughs> if you don't <laughs> use it, I would use it. I, I, I don't use it at the moment. Um, uh, but uh, I definitely think it is really great. So Caroline, when I spoke with her, she said um, the whole point of her moving from so basically she moved from Headspace back to the UK last year um, and then she's joining uh, Dentsu Creative on Monday, I think, um, next week, beginning of June, let's say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and her whole point was if she goes to, she said something like, oh, if she goes to a, if it's just a traditional advertising, you know, just, just like above the line work, um, then it wouldn't really be pushing her. Um, but this role, um, is more of kind of a group role and also being Dentsu, they cover a lot of channels of uh, marketing. So influencer, talent management, customer experience, social PR, production, brand activation, content marketing, entertainment, um, basically all of it. Um, which then she's also going to work, uh, with the media, um, customer experience management teams. So I think it's a really big role from, what she was doing here in the UK before. So she was at BBH, she was at um, Grey, um, and before she moved over to to Headspace. So Density Creative is, is still fairly young. It's coming up to its first anniversary next month, isn't it? Uh, so this month, excuse me, I'm, I'm doing it now, uh, at Cannes. Um, you wrote in the piece that, that Caroline will, will, will be sort of completing their sort of creative leadership team. What, what, what can you tell me about that? Yeah. So as you say, Dentsy Creative, I wrote the story um, last year uh, in June. Yeah. So they launched it. I think it was on the Monday of Cannes. Um, and the two people who launched it, Wendy Clark and Fred Levron, have now uh, left the business. Um, but yeah, so they're continuing Dentsy Creative, which... Uh, was basically pulling all the agency brand names together um, and it's kind of one. Um, and as you say, the agency, so the UK agency leadership um, with Caroline Pay as CCO, Chief Creative Officer, um, is now completed alongside Jessica Tamsedge, who's CEO, Chief Exec, and Chief Strategy Officer, Theo Izzard-Brown. Um, Carol- so I spoke to Caroline and, and, and Jess and... They were very um, 
I think they seem very, very happy to be uh, working together again. Jess said something like, oh, um, when they were working together at, I think it was Grey, and Caroline said, right, I'm leaving to go to Headspace. And she was like, right, okay, you can go and do that. But then when you come back, we'll do something together. Um, so I th- they, they um, it, was, it was very much uh, like they were very happy uh, when I spoke, to, spoke with them. And I think Caroline and Jess had been talking a while about, um, about this role, um, probably. But they just came across as good pals. I don't know Theo very well. Um, uh, well, I don't know Jess very well, nor <laughs> do I know Caroline very well. But <laughs> Theo wasn't in the interview. Um, so uh, I don't know the dynamic between the three of them. But um, if it's anything like Caroline and Jess, I think um, the three of them will make a, a good kind of, you know, good chemistry to, to lead a team, basically, to lead change there's a lot for them to do with dentist creative as you say it's only a year old so yeah excellent stuff thanks Gurdjieff we mentioned there at dentist creative having their first anniversary new commercial art celebrated its third birthday uh, just a couple of weeks ago the 18th of May I think was the exact date and it's been quite an eventful 36 months for the agency not least given that it spent its first year operating in a virtual bubble under lockdown I paid a team a visit in their London offices last week to don a colourful paper hat and help them blow out a few candles. Now, eager listeners might be able to spot that I was uh, suffering a bit of a cold, so I sound even more daft than, than usual. Did you actually wear a hat? I didn't wear a hat. I didn't have any candles. <laughs> they rather teased me as well. They, had, they presented a cake and then took it away. I was like, okay. <laughs> yep. In a rather meta way, I'm going to hand over to myself last week now. So I'm here in the offices of New Commercial Arts. Uh, where are we? It's sort of that in, bit in between... Good Street and Euston, isn't it? It used to be called NoHo in the in the nineties, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, we it? we like to think it's Fitzroy here. It's basically South Camden. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it sounds good. South Camden sounds good. So yeah, I'm, I'm here in the offices of New Commercial Arts, and it's it's a it's a lovely building. And I'm joined by James Murphy, CEO of NCA, who you, you just heard speaking. Then hi, James. Morning, David Golding, CSO. Hi, David. Hello. Ian, this sounds a bit Alan Partridge, isn't it? Uh-huh. And there, <laughs> uh, Ian Hartfield, CCO. Hello. Rob Curran, CXO. Hello. Matt Craig Afferton, who's head of production. Hello there. And Hannah White, who's the uh, managing director. Hi. And uh, we're, here, we're here to sort of celebrate the third anniversary of, of NCA, which is obviously a big moment, but it does seem that within those, trying to do my maths now, 36 months, whatever it would be, there's an awful lot that's been packed in. Um, I wanted to sort of start off just by asking James and, and, and David in particular to go back sort of five years, I guess, to 2018. When when you started thinking about uh, forming this this agency, where the idea came from? Because let's be honest, you were in quite a comfortable position. I mean, you, you could have just sort of not to put too fine a point on it, strolled off into the in, into the sunset and, and told Adlan to do one. Yeah, there's probably a lot of people wished we did that we had done that, <laughs> yeah. but um, and yeah, I think we. I mean, we left uh, Adam and Eve DDB in May 2019, and I think we had a, an idea about what we wanted to do. We'd had some interesting experience on certainly some of the larger accounts we'd worked on, like Volkswagen, where we'd noticed the fact that um, we were no longer just in the business of making promises through communications. We were actually working on websites and apps and retail environments. So we were helping brands keep their promises. And we liked this idea of bringing together uh, commercial creativity in comms and creativity in customer experience. And so we had a loose concept. And and lots of people ask us why 
why we did it again. And um, the, the answer is quite, well, for me at least, it's quite simple, which is because we like it. <laughs> um, we still very much enjoy the world of advertising. We enjoy making work that people see and comment on whether good or bad or and, and at Christmas people go oh you made that or you know I didn't like that and it's it's interesting and rewarding to, to still be part of people's lives and we like working in 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 a small team cracking big problems and it's it's still fun and when it stops being fun then then we'll stop but so far it hasn't stopped being fun and, and how did you like, all find each other because you are very kind of like-minded souls I, I get that impression well I think we uh David and I you know, knew we enjoyed working together and um, had worked in a way that seemed to work effectively. Um, DG had mentioned that he knew Rob, who was then a global chief experience officer at Wonderman Thompson, and that, you know, he would be an amazing addition to the team. And then someone else mentioned Ian and said, look, you know, this is a creative genius. You must meet him and, and so on. And I think when you've got a year's gardening leave, you've actually got quite a lot of time to reflect and think about exactly how you would like to shape something and who you'd like to do it with. And it's also a little bit of an essential chemistry thing in that in that agencies are a, a lot about talent and talent mix, but they're also about turning up. And it's about still being there at 11 o'clock at night, grinding it out and not giving up and pushing forward. And, and it's quite difficult to be still be there at 11 o'clock at night with you know a couple of goons. And therefore, it's it's nice to have nice people that you get on with that can have a laugh with it and share your values to 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 be doing that on a on a on a Sunday afternoon when you know you've given up a family time to all get together to try and crack something. You want to be able to do it with with nice people who who are doing it for the same motives, and with the same energy and the same passion. So a lot of, when you say like minded souls, there's a reason partly for that. It's because we have to go through a like minded adventure, and therefore we have to approach it in, in a similar way and go, yeah, we're going we're going to devote ourselves to this and commit ourselves to this and and play nicely and and do something together. Firstly, I think calling us not goons is the nicest thing you've ever said to us. Um, but no, I was, I'm coming at it slightly differently, obviously, because I joined after a year. And I think for people like me and, and people who joined at that stage and, and continue to join, you go, the opportunities to work in a startup, but have the proven leadership and, and the model of bringing communications and CX together felt like such a unique opportunity. Um, and I think still continues with sort of growth and winning things like Sainsbury's. To still be young, but having those sorts of opportunities is just something you don't find elsewhere. So I wanted to ask you about the name, uh, New Commercial Arts, which is which is quite a bold statement. I mean, I love it. I love NCA as well. It sounds like an American college or something. It always sounds very impressive. Um, but as we're saying, it, it is quite a bold statement of intent, really, isn't it? Yeah, I can imagine how long it took us to come up with that. I mean, it was the whole of the year before we got going. We were thrashing it around. The name is an extremely important thing. Um and I guess, yeah, it's 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 it works for us because it's saying exactly what we've just been talking about. It's it's customer experience and brand comms united. You know, that is a that is a, a new commercial art. That's what we believe it is. So we're just saying it as it is. Um, and that's the other thing we really like about the name as well. There's we've gone through the era of the single word agency names. We're not going to call ourselves Sparrow or anything like that. We want a name that says exactly what we are. Um, and I think we were we we're very uh, very pleased with it. Yeah, although ever so slightly worried occasionally when you get, you know, criminal bigwigs locked up for 40 years after the, you know, an in-depth uh, investigation by the National Crime Agency. We're always slightly worried about a revenge attack. <laughs> I think also it has got the word commercial in there, which which isn't just a sort of fluke. It, it, 
we do we do sort of ultimately judge what we do by whether it drives some level of performance, mm. whether that's genuinely sort of obviously commercial like sales uplifts or whether that's you know charitable donations or just you know an ability to change the conversation with important charities or good causes it has to have an output has to have an effect it's not just is it nice and pretty but you know does it do something and if it doesn't do something what can we do to make sure that it does so we're still quite heavily in the business that we've always thought for years actually that advertising is one of the levers that most brands can pull both quickly and that can make a radical and significant difference. And we're still quite keen to carry on doing that, that inherent sense of, I mean, it, it, it doesn't surprise us, but it, it's it, there is a sort of general sense, especially when you, you work with some new clients, of which when you're a startup, you get quite a few of them. They do an ad campaign for the first time. They can't believe how much it works. Mm. You know, advertising does work. And we're quite pleased with the output of a lot of what we do in terms of it it generally works and, and that f- is the final and asset test as far as we're concerned. So we put commercial right in the middle because that's kind of why we're here. Just quickly on the, the last thing on the name as well. I, I think when when David and I first met, we had a couple of breakfasts. So I think we, we ended up sort of violently agreeing on the fact that this should not be a new commercial art, you know, that, that it's it's sort of embarrassing that it hasn't been done so far. It's not, it's really not rocket science to say we want to make promises and keep them. And that, that can have, an, when you do it, you can have an enormous commercial effect for our clients. And that's, that's we simply just wanted to say precisely that in the name. We've kind of touched on this a couple of times. So it's, it's come up in conversation. The year before the launch, um, obviously you had to set out a non-compete agreement. So that, that must have been frustrating, but understandable. But then COVID hits. Just as just as you're launching, which famously now uh, is, is a huge part of your of your backstory, that must have been incredible. Can you can you talk me through uh, how that was? Certainly, from a sort of people perspective, um, it it obviously changed the way we work, but probably also changed the the sort of people um, that we got in uh, either as freelance or as perm hires, and, and the way we structured the whole team, um, because you know, working from home and, and then pitching from home and, and having, I don't know, designers and, and um, makers, uh, not just as third parties, but a lot further away from us. There's a lot of, sort of trust involved in that. And we had to rely on people that we knew and perhaps we'd worked with before um, and and flex our ways of working uh, in, in terms of um, style, perhaps, you know, become a, a really fresh new agency with, with, with new people. So I think it affected us, but we, we lent on our experience of, of what we knew worked from the past and, and essentially, um, pulled together, made remotely, but still very much together in the same direction. Um, and also we've, we've said, you know, in some ways, I think we were at an advantage because we just started in it. There were eight of us, you know, on a call for a year, you know, for the first few months, um, and we weren't having to, you know, work out how to make 350 people all suddenly work in this new way. You know, we were, we started in it. So we were able to, um, to deal with it quicker and, and better, we think. And I think although on one, on one sense, we were slightly daunted by the idea of launching in lockdown. It was, it, I think you could almost flip it and say there were absolutely some advantages for a startup in lockdown because we were able to pitch for and win quite big accounts and even international global accounts um, from our spare rooms. Mm. And that's really because we we had the same 
scale on Teams or Zoom as any of the big networks that we were pitching against. We all looked the same. We didn't, the fact we didn't have a large marble atrium to welcome people into or, you know, particularly deep shag pile carpet in the management suite. It was, it just didn't matter anymore. And you, you sort of mentioned trust there as, as, as well, Matt. Was, was there a sense that it brought, brought you all together as well? Because trust was one of those kind of buzzwords of, of that weird and spooky time, wasn't it, under lockdown? Yeah, absolutely. And I think nobody quite knew what was happening. Um, but in a small team, you can really pull together and, and trust each other. Yeah, you sort of, you know, you succeed together, fail together, fall together. But but there was a real sense of camaraderie in a small group. And, and as James is saying there, that actually a, a startup can thrive in that environment um, and and grow in ways that perhaps a, a, a big or an older company found a lot more challenging, and we could find the spaces where, uh, yeah, we could really push and 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 make things that perhaps would have been impossible before. Yeah, trust being the central point of that. I think it's also really easy for all of us to forget exactly how we were living mm. at that point. I mean, it was very, very strange. And what was interesting is I think rather than sitting on a Teams call trying to work out how we would do the pitch for Woo or Halifax or something, you're actually on the team. The team's call was a highlight of the day because you were living such strange, locked up, lonely lives that actually having something to discuss and debate and to try and shape, even though it was less good than working in the way we were used to previously, it was still better than just being locked down. So it was exciting in its own right. Yeah, there was one other aspect to it. I was always shocked. Um, I think everyone was probably shocked when 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 we were in lockdown. The kind of the, the quality of the work that you could get out was still really high. I think that was kind of we didn't know that would be possible. <laughs> I remember thinking with some with some things like how are we can do this if we can't see each other, and and it was amazing that we could. But it did also. I think it's fair to say kind of delay or slightly rob us of the, a little bit of the startup feeling th- at the beginning, mm. um, which we I think we've been sort of, we discovered later because what we got in it for was th- for us, you know, round the table and cracking problems together. And that's been a real kind of that, that sort of experience has come later. And it was, we did miss that at the beginning. Yeah, I think it, as James says, winning bits of business was was less challenging than, than we thought. I think the production side of things was a little bit harder. You know, the number of people who could or couldn't go on a shoot, all those sorts of things was particularly difficult. But culturally for me was the real was was a real thing. Because, you know, the first two or three years of Adam and Eve were up and down and they were they were they were sort of there was a lot of stories and a lot of there was a lot of high points and quite a lot of mess. Uh, whereas we didn't have that because a lot of it was literally in our bedroom. Then you go downstairs and make a cup of tea. And, you know, those sort of, oh, we've won a pitch. I'm just going to take the dog out for a walk because <laughs> I'm not allowed to do anything else. And and that's so, so there was there, a number of those narratives that you saw that the history of the agency was slightly robbed of us in the first 18 months because all those high points, like, do you remember when the two, the teams went down? Yeah. <laughs> nothing else happened so we're sort of making up for that a little bit now and and now we're in our own office that it's 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 a it's a stark reminder of just how fantastic it is for everyone to be together and and suddenly the culture starts to emerge very quickly but it, that was one of the harder parts of starting an agency you know a lot of it is is we win together and we lose together but we did neither mm-hmm. because we were never together yeah how, how did it did it kind of help position you as an agency as, as here's something different 
because the other kind of we, we mentioned trust the other big buzzword of course was, was fluidity and flexibility and, and all that sort of stuff and and you were an agency that were able to say well actually look we haven't got a physical space but we've got all this we can hit the ground running we can we can do all this stuff quick and well and and my personal perspective is not so much actually because everyone was like that at the time. So everyone was telling a story about how fantastically hybrid they'd become and were. And you know, I think someone said earlier actually, I actually do think being small was an advantage because you didn't have to spend a lot of your time wondering where two hundred and fifty of your three hundred staff were all the time. We, you know, there was nowhere to hide. We knew where we all were because we were all on that one screen together. It was you know how it how it particularly worked. So so it it. it I don't think the difference that we had was because we were born in lockdown. Mm. I think it was what we birthed in lockdown that was different, which was the, the combination of, of comms and, and CX. At a total parity, not there's a CX team over there, but all we're all one. Yeah. And so it was what we made, not the, the position we were in when we had to make it. I also think it it does differentiate us now because as we've been speaking about, the fact that we didn't have a legacy or we didn't have this set way of working in a big office and and people had desks and all these things meant that when we actually have returned to work and we've had this office now for, I think, about a year in London and in Glasgow for a little bit longer, but meant that being hybrid is genuinely baked into the way that we work because we've never not worked like that. Um, And, you know, this is a space that works around people's lives in different ways that our our, um, team members work. So I think that has continued to differentiate us and keep us agile as we grow. And I think that sense of um, there definitely was a liberation in it where you looked at it and you went, actually, we don't have to find our way back to something that existed pre-COVID because it's a blank sheet. So actually, let's create something a bit lighter and nimbler and perhaps a bit more built around the way people want to live their lives and their working lives. And I mean, it was interesting yesterday, you know, we had a, a big what was a big, in terms of numbers, Sainsbury's meeting. And there were a group of people in the meeting room here, a group of people at Sainsbury's. There were some clients here as well. And then there were various people dotted around in their spare rooms and so on. And it was incredibly fluid. You know, it just, and you go, this is a very, it feels just like a more enlightened way of people leading their working lives to have that. It also felt totally normal. Right. Yeah. So it's ordinary. That's how meetings are now. Mm. And and that has enormous benefits for agencies because you can have people abroad and who cares? They can dial in as much as anywhere else. So your talent pool is much larger. You can have people who say, I don't want to live in London anymore. You don't have to go, okay, bye. You go, good, knock yourself out. And and you can be much more open, much more flexible. And and it's it's totally normal. You go, well, isn't it weird? We're all on a call. I've never thought that in the last. You go, yeah, we're all on a call. Yeah, when he what? Says abroad, you mean the office in Glasgow? Right, yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. So how how were you guys looking to sort of measure success in that first year? What 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 were you kind of what what were your ambitions? What were your aims? I think in the thing that hasn't changed about the industry is I'd say it's probably still a momentum game. So what you're looking to do is to be able to win some pitches, which then enables you to do some work, which then enables you to turn up in the market and show evidence of what you can do. And then you can hopefully get on some more pitches and win some work. So I think there was a, at its most basic sense, I think you need to arrive as such. And then I think probably the other side of that in terms of success was, okay, are we shaping unique ways of working? Because we think we have a unique proposition. And are we creating something for the people we're working with that feels like it might be a unique learning experience for them. 
Yeah, I mean, one of my measures of success certainly was, can this work, right? Because I think we've all been through processes where agencies try to merge two disciplines or even merge, you know, big agencies. And I genuinely had the question of like, you know, we know it's a good idea, you know, and the theory of it is sound. And as I said, sort of obvious, right? You should be doing both of these things and you should be doing them in unison. Um, But I didn't know whether it would work. Um, and even in lockdown, it was it was nice to when you start something that's born in this shape, it can work. Um, and and I certainly had experience of when you slam these two things together, when it's not born in this shape, it doesn't work. And so you know, it was a real relief to go. Oh, we we are creating something new. It is a new commercial art, and we're doing it. And that was a, for me. That was the first year was just a huge relief that we that that was working. Mm. And did did clients get on board with the idea fairly quickly? Was there was there a moment for oh, thank Christ they get it? Absolutely, yeah. I, I think um, there there are some clients where um, you sort of present the proposition, and and you know to our relief, clients are like, well, yeah, that, I mean. Obviously, yeah, it should definitely work like that. And then you start, you know, going about it. There were some clients who came to us and said, you know, I need it to work like this. We are not, we are, currently we're making promises that are disconnected from the reality that we're offering our customers and it has to work like this. And um, therefore they came to us for that. So yeah, it kind of, it clicked it, either when we kind of presented it and it, it's quite easy to make it click or when people just kind of demanded it, it was like that. But really, one of our first wins was um, Halifax, and that was born out of, you know, we had a situation where you had a client that had worked with us before, but equally they'd been promoted into a new role from being a CMO to a chief customer officer and suddenly had to balance this idea of building a brand, making promises, but then keeping the promises through customer experience. And so as we launched, we were like, over here, we actually do that. Your new job is exactly shaped like we are. And they were doing a customer experience orientated pitch and we were able to kind of come in at the back end of that pitch and I mean we had two weeks to do it in the end which was pretty horrendous but it was it felt like the model that we were putting into the market had arrived just at the right moment yeah do you remember what your kind of opening lines to Halifax were during the pitch? Please. Please. And no, I mean, I can't actually remember exactly what they were apart from they they came at us with an extremely frightening timeline in terms of saying, right, you know, you're late to this. You've got two weeks. And, and then they said and to me, but you're coming over to the side here and you're going to be duffed up by our procurement people for that two weeks. So everyone else worked on the the richness of the strategy and the CX and the creativity. <laughs> Meanwhile, I was being legally and financially torn apart. But it was, um, and, and, and that was, I remember the sense, the, the real worry that I had then is, just being slightly candid about it was, am I match fit for this? Because it's sort of to go from a year's, not doing much to suddenly needing to try and land something like that in two weeks. I was like, I don't know. Can hopefully the other lot are match fit. <laughs> that must have been a massive confidence booster for you, though. Yeah, no, it was. And but I mean, I don't know. I would say that we're always slightly. I think what it helps in this game to be slightly haunted by that question of is it good enough the whole time. And I think we, you know, we. I don't think we've ever really lost that. So. 
I, and I, I think we were buoyed up by the opportunity, but you're always like, okay, we've got to convert this because that would be pretty embarrassing to not, to get something that's quite a flagship opportunity and then fumble it. Was there anything from your, your sort of previous time at Adam and Eve or, or, or from, from sort of, you know, early on in your career that, that you took with you that sort of stood you in good stead, I think, for, for winning Halifax? I'm thinking in particular of things like, um, you know, building relationships with, with marketers and clients and, and, and so on. That's always been something that you've been good at. Yeah, I mean, I think that the thing is that you, what's interesting is that definitely, you know, when we started Adam and Eve, we benefited from relationships and reputation that we'd built at previous places like Rainey Kelly and, and TPWA and so on. And then equally, as we went into NCA, some of that reputation from Adam and Eve came with us and some of those relationships, people had moved on. You know, there are, um, you know, pivotal clients, even at Sainsbury's now, who we'd worked with in previous um, roles. So yeah, relationships are important. I think probably the main lesson we took from Adam and Eve is basically it's, you've got to build a really good gang. Mm. And and basically, if you've got the gang, then almost anything's possible. Was there sometimes a sense that in, in that initial first year, the pressure was kind of off to the extent that, that you know, if we were in normal circumstances, you'd, you'd be under a certain a, a lot more pressure, I suppose, than you would be un, under under lockdown conditions? Because the sense really is in the second year, things just went bonkers, really, didn't they? There were new clients coming on every other, every other month, pretty much. Uh, yeah, I think in the first year, there was definitely a sense of, I wonder what will happen, what will happen. I think the the pressure we felt was probably less about winning stuff and more about delivering because we won probably more than we expected uh, more quickly. And so the main thing was, oh my God, we now need to deliver across these various different things whilst being in a new way of working. And then, yeah, as we tipped into the second year, I think, and it became a bit more of a, it wasn't really even a physical business then. It was still largely virtual, but there was a sense in which the market in the UK came back to life and there were more pitches to get embroiled in. Amazing people like Hannah joined. Just that kicked off. I was about to make it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I made it first. Did, did coincide with the one-year mark. Um, no, I, um, I also think being self-deprecating, a lot of the success of the second year was fundamentally found in that first year and finding those ways of working that we've spoken about, making the hybrid model work, making you know, customer experience and communications, those two ways of working come together. So I think where you see the sort of prolific new business wins in that second year, a lot of that ground was set in the first. Yeah. And also just pulling the team together and, you know, having a few more people and, and being able to um, put experts on on the right briefs. And, and it, as you grow the team, you can obviously work out um, – who who's best for each task and we were becoming a bit more of a unit you know mm-hmm. for rather than eight people perhaps you know 30 or 40 people and and that that's continued to grow and and um each year has presented different challenges but also great opportunities were the challenges because of the momentum with all the new clients coming on board was there a sense of um oh blimey we better get an office sorted out for example I don't know. I think I think those practicalities almost um, happen organically. You know, it, they're not problems. They're, they're just it, you know you've got to sort out practical issues. It, it it doesn't affect people getting on with their the job in hand. So I think um, we we sort of we're a bit of a a steam train. Everyone everyone's sort of wanting to do their best and and pull together and and 
carry on regardless of some of that practicality. That's just that just makes life easier. It's great that we're all in one space now after three years. Um, but actually, in year two, we we were still successful, and we just found a, be- a better way of doing things. And I think there was that there was a moment when I I think I really got fed up with being quite so nomadic because having been in lockdown, we then moved to a situation where I think we rented a bit of space from Steve Parrish in Beak Street. Then we moved rented the ground floor of Ridley Scott Pictures for about three months. Then we moved round to that place sewing machine shop or something around the corner, which was like a boiling inferno because we got there in the summer, and and you were just like please. I just want a space that we can work in. And and it was strange, the commercial situation where I thought commercial landlords would be desperate to get new businesses signed up and so on. And it was like nothing had happened. They were like still sort of holding the same prices, the same rents and sort of, you know, playing hard to get. And it was quite a shock. So it took us a long while to get in here simply just through the negotiation and admin. I also wonder whether we were the first agency to ever – outgrow its first office without physically getting in it yes because we we had we had a space uh from day one and by the time we were allowed to go into it there were more of us than could fit in it so we we'd nev- never never actually got in it whether that's a first or not i don't know it might be I've, I've said populist here it's such a problematical term these days isn't it popular um ads you know the, the, the way that you focus on customers and customer experience was that a happy accident or was it always the aim of the agency sort of going back to, to you know three or four years well if you if you if you use the term popular ads uh yeah absolutely yeah. Uh, w- was the aim of the agency and i think going back to the first time i sat down and talked to, to james and david um before we did all this you know i think that was the the common ground we had immediately was the desire to the belief that advertising is is a real thing that should talk to real people and be seen by real, real people um you know getting a pat on the back from Adland is, is nice, but it's not the aim of why we do this. So, so that came up very quickly in our in our conversations. So, and I think everybody that's come on board and everyone we talk to, that's almost the first thing we talk about is like, why are you why are you doing this? You know, and yeah. and I certainly started advertising because I wanted to do work that you know my mates back at home would talk about and know, and you know, and, and not not just as I said the little ad bubble. So, popular, you know, effective, uh, real work that real people see is absolutely at the heart of of NCA and Rob's trying to grab the microphone off of me to say the same thing. Yeah, no, exactly the same thing on the, you know, it's one of the things that, yeah, before we launched, we, we all vehemently agreed on is that we wanted to make things that existed in the real world and, you know, affected people's lives. And that's, that's the ultimate reward of customer experience is that it's actually, you know, very much not the kind of, the the kind of exciting sort of temporary stuff it's the stuff that people really use it makes their lives better and it might go under the radar and that's fine because we've made someone's you know experience with a brand better in that moment they'll come back to that brand they'll be more loyal to that brand they'll remember it that's the stuff that that we've always wanted to do and i think yeah the 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 communications have been popular and the the changes that we've made to businesses have been real right and that's that's that was the the aim from the beginning just to sort of bring us crashing up to date uh, last month you resigned halifax i think it was was it earlier this year or last month was, did, did that feel like a significant moment, a, a kind of signpost in, in, in the way that the, the agency is developing? Or? I guess it's an unusual thing. But what's what's interesting about it, I think it gets to the essence of what's best about this industry, which is its people. Mm. Okay. And, you know, there's no doubt that walking away from Lloyds Banking Group and Halifax was a novel decision. 
But we had a very, very talented client um, that we've so enjoyed working with. And she was moving somewhere else. And that offered a similar but conflicting opportunity. And a brand that needed customer experience, as well as comms and strategy and so on. And it was just, we wanted to work with people we love working with. And because it makes a difference. We mentioned Sainsbury's. Uh, you, you run Sainsbury's last month, and and, and you know I'm, I'm sure you're still uh, celebrating to an extent because that must have felt like a real acknowledgement of everything you've been pushing towards over the past three years, mustn't it? Definitely, and, and we are still celebrating. Um, no, we're actually now into the the muck and bullets of working together with them, which is exciting in its in its own way. But um, yes, it in answer to that question, it it absolutely did. I think coming in at the size we are to a pitch of that scale with going up against, you know, very established, big new business teams um, in the, I think it was list of 10 that started off and then down to the final three. You know, we we did absolutely feel like we were probably the the rank outsider and to win something like that and, and get to make the work that we pitched with and build that relationship with the client over that pitch process we couldn't be more excited genuinely to have that at, at the three-year mark. Um, it felt like a huge reward and a, just the best opportunity. And how did you celebrate? There was a, I was actually unfortunately on holiday. Um, <laughs> so I, in Morocco with a mint tea, but everyone here went down to the pub, the Carpenters, which is our local. Well, uh, you took over the pub. Um, oh. the, the clients came to see us, didn't they, that yeah, evening? They, they, they came came to into this office here, bought bots of champagne and um, everyone was here. Had a few glasses. It was a, a good evening. Yeah. Um, but you know, also I think the other thing with, with Sainsbury's, it's it's just the that it's such an important brand in this country. You know, it really is. And the chance to make work again is coming back to what we said at the beginning that that everyone is going to see. There'll be no hiding from it. Um, and to just and to just to give you know, to bring the uh, the real meaning to, to to that brand. I think it's 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 the it's the scale of impact on people's lives that that that, that brand like that can have, and that's why we set this thing up. We you know we didn't we're not messing around. We want to go for the, for the big big brands that can do the big work, and and we're we're really excited. We're right at the beginning of that journey, but um, you'll see it soon enough. James, you spoke to campaign in well just just after the launch in 2020, and and you used the term emotional fuel when 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 you were talking about kind of the spirit of the agency. Um, is is that something that's still there? Do you still have that kind of energy and attitude of, of, of a startup, if you like. Well, I think this is an industry where what's brilliant about it is you're set a relentless series of puzzles to solve. Every client brief is a puzzle. Generally, a client brief is often a problem. You know, we, this is happening to our business. This is happening to our brand. Can you help? And so I think that you've constantly got that stimulus of there's a problem. Can we crack it? And then behind that, you've got the periodic pitching where you're in a situation where you go, the client's got a challenge in the brief. Can we crack it better than those three other teams, all of whom I know personally? And um, and we've competed against before. So there's a constant, I think, emotional momentum in the industry, which is about uh, solving puzzles together and also sometimes competing in it, solving puzzles in a competitive situation. Mm. Yeah, I think I think that emotional fuel is what drives us forward. I think you, it, we look at the people and I, I would never say that we recruit one type of NCA person because I think we recruit lots of different people with, as we've spoken about a lot, different expertise, backgrounds, ways of working. But I'd say one of the things that perhaps ties our people together is a proactivity and a want to really drive the work forward first and foremost and also their own careers forward because here we're flat structured, the sky's the limit, you can sort of go as fast as 
you you want and and I think ultimately it comes down to we have a lot of people who maybe will start their own businesses one day and that fuel and that drive really um keeps the business pushing forward so how did you guys celebrate the third anniversary we're talking exactly a week to the day afterwards I think is it were you uh Back in the carpenter's arms. Guessed it. We were back in the carpenter's arms, doing great trade out of us. Um, We had an array of cakes. There were some speeches, cakes for all the allergies. No, it was a great party here and then the carpenters. And so the the classic final question, really, what's next? Where do you see yourselves in in three years' time? I guess the answer is the carpenter's arms. (laughs) (laughs) So something that probably does link NCA and Adam and Eve is that I don't think we ever had a master plan for each one. I think there's more a a general sense of direction, which is that we have to feel like we're still learning and growing. And that's definitely part of the contract I think we feel we must honor with people who've agreed to come and work with us, which is uh, we, we will say, look, we want you to be in an environment where you will learn more, more quickly than, than anywhere else. But we also want to feel that. And I think it is, it still surprises me that as someone who is, sort of definitively the oldest person in the organization, the number of things I still don't know, I still mistake, make mistakes with, and I have to learn from. And I think that's testament to the industry. It's about the fact that the industry is evolving so relentlessly and rapidly that you've always got more to learn. Talking of things that James has to learn, I thought it should be known on this podcast that he does actually print QR codes. Um, so he's got quite a lot to learn in the digital <laughs> space. Wonderful stuff. Thank you all so much uh, for, for your time. And um, a belated happy birthday to you all. And, uh, you. and many congratulations on a, on, a, on a wonderful three years. And I look forward to seeing what happens, what happens next. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Hope you're feeling better. If you'd like to learn more about what we've been discussing today, please visit our website, campaignlive.co.uk. Details of our subscriptions are available at campaignlive.co.uk forward slash membership. If you enjoyed this episode of the Campaign Podcast, please follow us, like us, and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. A big thank you to Haymarket Studio Manager, Nav Pal, and also our producer, Aidan Lyons, from Rethink Audio. And a big thank you to you too for listening. I hope you will join us next time. On behalf of the campaign team, goodbye.